Okay, so um, we're looking at Psalm 5 today. Uh, does anyone does anyone love reading Psalms? I'll read a Psalm. Let's go. Yeah, Luke I'll hasn't read, read one for a while. Um, look, I'll skip the title. Um, <laughs> give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for you and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favours as a shield. Thanks, Luke. I think Luke's practising for his uh, voiceovers or something like that. (laughs) So so this psalm that that Luke just read for us, uh, it's actually quite similar to the first four psalms that we've already explored in that it presents a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. And it seems that the psalmists are actually obsessed with this contrast. They can hardly say a word of praise in praise of the righteous without fulminating against the wicked. This is very different to how our culture thinks about such things with our terror of offending someone. Why would it be so important to the Holy Spirit to inspire such words? Let me tell you a story. Two years ago, a young Gold Coast woman was pursuing an exciting career. As in many careers, certain sacrifices were necessary for advancement, or expected at least. Going out drinking is a pretty common expectation in many workplaces, and it certainly was in hers. One night, she went out and drank heavily with workmates, but afterwards, a guy a tiny bit further up the ladder than her invited her back to work with him for some reason. Despite their workplace being very secure, they managed to talk their way in and ended up in the office of one of the big bosses where he raped her. She was found by security in the morning, alone and partially dressed. She declined to press charges but the guilty guy was dismissed in a few, within days for some reason. For two years, she kept quiet, trying to preserve some sense of dignity, trying to avoid the personal and professional fallout. 
This month, she decided this needed to be made public. So she mounted a carefully constructed media campaign with her journalist boyfriend and reported the crime to police. Now, so far, apart from the carefully carefully constructed media campaign, this is a too common sad tale of sexual harassment leading to assault. The difference is how how the powerful people in her organisation behaved when all of this went public. Instead of looking at how they could have and should have treated this better, how they could have better balanced the desires of the victim with the need of the ju- of the need for justice half of the higher ups in this organization bayed for the blood of the big boss they saw it not as a tragedy or even as an opportunity to improve security or their culture or anything like that they just saw it as an opportunity to tear down their target who actually had only the most tenuous relationship to the situation. Why? Well, obviously one answer is that I'm talking about the scandal in the federal parliament and the higher-ups are politicians. But why do our politicians see every tragedy, every sin, as a political opportunity to tear each other down? I think it's, it's simple. They've forgotten or they never understood the horror of sin, the way it destroys all that it touches. They think they can use sin as a tool. They're not alone in this, as the actions of the media demonstrate. But all of these people are terribly wrong. Let's turn to the text of Psalm 5 and see what it has to say. Now Psalm 5 alternates between passages explaining the actions and attitudes of the righteous and those of the wicked. It has this structure. Verses 1 to 3 talk about a righteous man approaching God in the morning to pray. Verses 4 to 6 then talks about sinners evildoers, boasters, liars, who by contrast cannot stand in the presence of God. Then verses 7 to 8 talks about how the righteous, on the other hand, can enter God's house and journey his straight path with him. Then in verses 9 to 10 it contrasts again the words of the wicked and how they are evil and self-destructive. And finally, in verses 11 to 12, it tells us how the righteous share the joy of salvation and God's protection. So, when I read this and thought about it, I wondered, are we, as 21st century Australian Christians, are we comfortable with this contrast As modern Christians, we often struggle with the Psalms, I think, because this contrast between the righteous and the wicked is so stark. We tend to see the world as more grey. 
the gulf for us between the righteous and the wicked is not so great. The world is made up of, of sinners, some greater sinners than others, but all sinners. And we are relieved often when we discover someone's dirty secrets because it demonstrates their humanity. But is that how the New Testament portrays the world? Is that Jesus' worldview? (coughs) This week I encountered one of Paul's many sin lists in my one-on-one time with Tim, in the book of Tim. (coughs) Um, These are lists... These sin lists are lists of all the wicked things human beings do, which separate them from God, although not each list is exhaustive, of course. You wouldn't have anything other than sin lists if that was the case. So let's take a look at this one and see what it tells us about the New Testament's perspective on the righteous and the wicked. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. Paul's actually talking to Timothy about his, his task in Ephesus. And he says, Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now this first part, the first point to note, is that the law doesn't apply to the just but to the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. What does Paul mean by that? In Romans 3, verses 23 to 24, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The just are those that have been justified by Christ's death on the cross, who have accepted that gift of grace by faith. In contrast, everyone else falls under the condemnation of the law. Hmm. This sounds like the New Testament is still presenting a stark contrast But let's keep going on this passage in Timothy. In verse 9, note the pairs of nouns that describe those who have not been justified by Christ. Lawless, ungodly and profane all refer to those who don't know God, who live in ignorance, while disobedient, sinners and unholy refer to those who know God and live against him, nonetheless. That would seem to include, well, everyone. Everyone who isn't a Christian, right? It reminds me of Romans 1.19. 
for what can be known about God is plain to them. Paul's talking about every human being that's ever existed in this passage. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He goes on to say that creation actually shows us God's nature. Genuine ignorance is impossible because God has made his nature visible to every human being. And if they really cared about sin, they would seek him out. But they don't, as Paul goes on to say. But let's look at the actual sins. Let's see if we're comfortable with all of these as sins. It includes those who disrespect their parents. As the ESV puts it, those who strike their mother or father. Do we really think this is a sin, young guys? <laughs> do, do parents really need respect? <laughs> what about murderers? I think we're pretty comfortable with that one, right? I don't think any of us wants to say murderers aren't sin. Murder isn't a sin. Unless we're really, really big Dexter fans or something, I don't know. Um, <laughs> What about sexual immorality? And, and by that, Paul means any sexual intercourse outside marriage. Any. That means hooking up as teenagers, adultery, one-night stands, sleeping together before marriage. Do we think all of that's a sin? Or any of that's a sin? How about men who practice homosexuality? Certainly our culture is very uncomfortable recognizing this is a sin. That's not a sin. That's our lifestyle choice. Men who practice... Ah, uh, sorry, I've done that one. Enslavers. This is, this is actually pretty straightforward to our culture now, but go back 150, 200 years to the south of the US or other parts of the world, and Christians, particularly in the US, in the Confederate States of the US, Christians were very... Certain, certain that it was not a sin to be an enslaver. Liars? Well, we say this is a sin, but do we really mean it? Do we act as if it is? Perjurers? Well, yeah, this is even illegal, so that one's pretty obvious. So just from this single brief list, you can see that we find ourselves... And our culture finds itself even more ambivalent about what is and what is not a sin, right? It's hard. Now, if sin is so slippery, so hard to define or to agree on, why is it so important to the psalmists to separate the wicked and the righteous? Are they just mired in their ancient prejudices? Remember how the structure of Psalm 5 contrasts the righteous and the wicked. What is the key difference between the two in the psalm? And you can see it in this structure diagram here. Separation from God. And? Salvation, which, is, which leads to? Righteousness. Which allows... It's sort of the opposite of separation from God. Coming into God's presence, right? This psalm is really... It, it, it's, 
it's, it really focuses on the reality that the righteous can enter the house of God. At the beginning, the righteous is approaching God and in the middle they enter into his house and, and go journey with him. And at the end, they, they enjoy his protection. Whereas the wicked, they can't even get close to God. And their own wickedness will destroy them, which is the ultimate separation from God. Now, that's not a new observation. It's not new to Psalm 5. Have a look at um, Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment for sinners nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Saying exactly the same thing. Some say the New Testament preaches a different message to this. But does it? Let's jump to the very end. At the very end of the New Testament, we find the destination of us all the long prophesied day of the Lord. And we find the final end of those who reject Christ's sacrifice is the same as it has always been, death. So the New Testament does still have this stark difference between the righteous and the wicked. But you know there's a difference, right? You just you must be frustrated with me at the moment. It's like you're teasing us. There's actually a difference, right? You know that the worldview presented by Jesus, Paul, Peter and John and so on in the New Testament is different somehow, right? But how? The difference, of course, is that we know that righteousness does not come from within our own selves but rather from Christ living in us. We're not considered just because of our behaviour, but because Christ has justified us. In Galatians, Paul explains, for, though the law, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now this idea is, of course, core, central to our faith. But it's so counterintuitive, it's so countercultural that we have to keep on preaching it to ourselves or we'll forget it. Now, and this is where things get a bit surprising, this isn't just a New Testament idea. At the, uh, sorry, went the wrong way. In Psalm 5. In the middle, verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. We find the same idea right here, right in the middle of Psalm 5. 
David was already aware that it was through the abundance of God's steadfast love, not through his own righteousness, that he was allowed to enter into the house of God. David may not have been aware of Jesus' sacrifice. In fact, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. But through the sacrifices of the law and his awareness of his own sin, he was aware of his need for Jesus' death. And he was aware that he needed God's help to continue living a righteous life. Make your way straight before me. That, it, that of course, is why we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to make God's way straight before us. I think, did I finish that? So you see that the psalmist's stark contrast between the righteous and wicked, it's not a a contrast between people who've never sinned and people who have. Rather, it's a contrast between people who seek to enter into God's presence in humble obedience and faith and those who arrogantly reject God and do whatever they want with their own and their neighbours' lives. That's why sin's so dangerous, because it's never just us. So as we finish, I want to focus on that beautiful prayer in the middle of the psalm, make your way straight before me. There are three things we need to understand about that prayer as we pray it each day. First, we we need to pray it daily because of our enemies, as the psalmist says. They'll try to trip us up. They'll try to place obstructions in our path. We live in a world that is hostile to our obedience to God. And we must never forget that. It's not an easy ride. Second, we're following God's way not ours. The prayer is not make my way straight before me, but make your way straight before me. Obedience means giving up any plans we have apart from God. At the moment, my niece Rebecca and my daughter Atalia are struggling a little to understand how to live together harmoniously. Living in the same dwelling requires some measure of sacrifice, of giving up our own plans, even if it's as simple as giving up our plan to only clean the toilet once a term. (laughs) That would be my plan. (laughs) But obedience to God involves giving up all of our individual plans Everything, absolutely everything must be laid on the table before God. Nothing's excluded. That's why we need to pray this prayer every morning. Remember verse 3 of this psalm said, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And finally... We must remember the horror of following our own way. 
That's why the psalmists and the New Testament authors keep on reminding us of our sin. If we forget how destructive and how filthy sin is, then we'll be tempted to either indulge in it or to use it as a tool. Now, every so often I watch Dashcam Crashcam <laughs> or Dashcam Australia. I watch these videos on YouTube. It's dangerous, so I don't necessarily recommend you'll, you'll get hooked and you'll waste, waste a whole afternoon. Uh, but I find that the Australian uh, Dashcam videos, which show, which show Australians doing stupidly or carelessly dangerous things in their cars remind me of the dangers of automotive sinning such as lack of concentration speeding going through red lights um, pulling out without actually being able to see oncoming traffic etc etc I watched some as research for the sermon and yeah it's just I'm stressed out um, <laughs> The, the Psalms and, and Paul's sin lists are, are like life cam crash cam compilations and I think we should take heed of them. So let's pray and let's use the words of David at the end of this psalm. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favour as with a shield. Amen.